Hello, and welcome to Lament Configuration, a podcast about the shit that makes us sad. I'm horror author and film critic Gretchen Falker Martin, and with me is my illustrious co host, Julia Graffer. Uh I'm a graphic novelist and noted Twitter personality. That's even that is not fair because Gretchen is a much more noted Twitter personality than me. It's I not just, like uh, super significant. <laughs> I think so. I think you're an influencer. Uh, oh God! I'm just trying to. Just saying, I'm a graphic novelist is so brief. That's true. I would. I, mean, I would I rather say that I'm something person. more exciting. Uh, but you're responsible for the the um, popularity of the Sopranos on trans Twitter. That that is true. I do take credit for that. Um, I'm responsible I guess largely for, because I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I'm responsible for a lot of people being more angry about zines than they were previously on Twitter. Yeah, that was huge. That was just like an unbelievable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, Julia created this beautiful comic that was a guide to making your own zines. Thank you. And it was beautiful. I love that book. I own a copy and like <laughs> hundreds, I should of hope hundreds, so. hundreds of people got really, really angry at the suggestion that they could make something. <laughs> That's really all there is to it. I mean, if you tell people that they can do something for themselves, there's a, a portion of people that are always going to be upset and say no I can't yeah and probably some of them are right and that's fine it's just that the Twitter model is such that you you see all this content that you didn't necessarily sign up for and so you're forced to see all this stuff that doesn't apply to you and and you lash out at the people who are talking to people other than you and you're like why aren't you talking about me in particular right you sort of internalize everything that you see Mm-hmm. And of course, like, if that were an involuntary process, the world would be unnavigably hostile. <laughs> True. But it is something you can learn. And I think it's good to practice both ignoring things that don't apply to you and reading things in good faith. Probably you're right. Which, well, I mean, it, it's different when it comes to like being someone with a following and strangers being aggressive towards you like I, I feel like it's okay to shoot first and ask questions later in that scenario that experience of twitter is just like being at the the game at the fair where like stuff pops up with a little target on it and you have to shoot it with a bb gun <laughs> right and i guess maybe you have to stop and make sure that it's a duck and not a screaming lady or something but it's fake if you shoot a screaming lady sometimes it's you know who cares yeah, let God sort them out. Exactly. So uh, speaking of letting God sort them out, we were going to talk about leprosy tonight a little bit. I had, I guess, not really any worse of a day than usual. <laughs> no, my landlord was in my apartment for a long time fixing things and making my cat and my son absolutely insane. My son is terrified of the landlord, <laughs> as he should be. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, I'm just just want to make it easy. So I was saying before we started recording that maybe we could keep it pretty freeform and just kind of talk about whatever. 
I don't know. I, I'm still thinking about what kind of a podcast we want to be. I would be perfectly content to be the kind of podcast that people listen to when they're trying to fall asleep. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a nice thing to be. And then, you know, they won't remember the stupid things that I said. That's also true. Or maybe they'll have stupid dreams about the things that I said. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm perfectly happy to keep things light and talk about art and irritating shit we saw on the internet and just sort of see where it takes us. We That's can talk cool. about lepers another time. Okay, that works for me. I feel bad too because I have a really great book about lepers that I have read before, but I would I wanted to uh, refresh myself before we talked about it. That's probably the least surprising sentence I've ever heard you say. Bitch, how many books about lepers do you own? I think only one. Oh, really? Well, that's I do have a lot of me. books about flagellants. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have any books about flagellants. Well, there you go. We're, we're each hoeing our own rows. <laughs> there are sometimes <gasps> there are overlapping rows. So that's we got true. some Twitter questions. Oh, yeah, we did. Let's go right to those. Sure. Yeah. Do you mind if I start? You do it. You. I want you to read them. If I go on Twitter, I'm going to get mad about something. <laughs> okay. So the first question is from Catherine K. When you witness something, either in real life or in art, that makes you sad, what techniques do you use to process this, other than podcasting about it? <laughs> well, the podcasting about it is new. The first thing that I do is I, I DM it to Gretchen and I say, can you believe this shit? <laughs> and then I say, oh, Christ, or my God, or something like that. Uh, I want to lie down in the street and die. Um, the usual. Yeah. it's just... Commiseration is is a big help, honestly. Misery loves company. I agree. You know, it's. I think it's very important to have people that you can go to and be like, is this not a huge fucking terrible bummer? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I think about often this a study that I read that said that this is going to immediately take it to someplace really heavy, but it was about recovering from sexual assault. And uh, it said that one of the factors in the people's ability to recover from assault was like the extent to which what had happened to them was validated by the people around them right you know like this is what you see on like uh svu that makes svu so exciting is that you know somebody gets raped and then all the all the cops are like oh we're so sorry this happened to you we're totally going to get this guy and this is terrible nobody should have to go through this like people don't really say that to you that much in real life right. when it's something a, bad a, happens to you it's a high fantasy setting where people care that women get raped yeah but to bring that down a couple notches just any kind of bad experience that you have becomes much easier to process if you can share it with other people and have a context for it uh in your community with your friends whatever so that you're not carrying the burden of that feeling by yourself and there are some things that make me sad that i just have to make myself not think about there, like oftentimes I need to go need to go back through the archives of one of my inspiration tumblers, which some of the pictures on there are just like really deeply upsetting. There's one that always 
makes me cry, which is of a, a deer that's been hit by a car and her fawn is curled up next to her neck, uh, still alive. Uh, <laughs> and like, it fucking ruins me. But like, that's why I have the photo saved is because like, sometimes I need to access that idea and that feeling. Yeah. But I just have to, when I see it, I make myself look away. I'm like, okay, we're going to keep going. I look at something else. I've yeah, gotten kind of like dig your climbing hooks into the wall and just go. Yeah. Um, you you kind of have to brute force yourself out of it exactly. if you can. And I, I do the same thing. You know, there, there are memories that I revisit when I want to evoke those sensations in art I'm making or when I want to try and understand what someone else is going through. And there's, I mean, there's no trick to it. You actually have to feel some bad shit. Right. And then you have to try as hard as you can to stop feeling it on top of itself over and over and over again until you go insane. Getting on antidepressants helped me a lot to like be able to set things aside. God, yeah. Like it used to be much easier for me to just like get sucked into the swamps of sadness and not be able to get out. And now it's it's a little easier for me to like graze it and bounce off if I need to. Yeah, there, I've noticed that too. I have a much quicker recovery period. I mean, I remember when we first became friends, which was four or five years ago. Yeah, something like something that. Like that. We were both both much more depressed. Yes, true. And it it could be very very hard to climb out of that swamp, which really does feel like the fucking speaking of emotionally ruinous things. The swamp <laughs> never ending story, right? Oh God! I think about that horse in the mud. Never mind. You know what? <laughs> Let's yes. talk about something else. Let's not. But this, we've kind of uh, brushed up against another interesting facet of this, which is that we can't just not think about those things ever because we make art about those things. Right. So, I do feel that I have to have that picture of the deer saved. Because sometimes I need to think about stuff like that. And it can be definitely tricky to access those things for work and then set them aside so that you can live your life. And I, I won't pretend that I am great at striking that balance. I'm not... <laughs> I'm never going to be like... America's number one most mentally healthy woman. Uh, but yeah. it's mostly manageable, I think. Yeah, as someone who makes like very rigorously and intentionally upsetting art about people who have been traumatized their whole lives, it is a hard balance to maintain. And I also feel that I need to keep those things to an extent close to me because, I mean, Part of art is a desire to be known. And I don't think that someone can know me without understanding that my life has been hard and painful. Right. And that, that informs the person I am and the choices I've made. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels very dishonest to me to make happy art. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't either. It does. It just does nothing. It connects to nothing in me. Feels hollow. I mean 
I've had like people in my family ask me, you know, like, why, why don't you make, why don't you write a book about something nice? Why don't you try to uplift people? Yeah, I get that all the time. You know, with your gift, make the world a better place. Uh, for one thing, I think that people who think that way have a different vision of the world being a better place than I do. But also, I don't really know. I don't know what that looks like. What's the what's the uplifting art that is so great? See, here's I actually think that uplifting people is as morally neutral and sort of useless in most situations as like talk therapy for an abuser. (laughs) You know, I mean, validating someone is something that can be helpful and healing and something that can enable hateful or destructive worldviews and behaviors. It's not a good thing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. There are so many elements of human connection that are neutral. Yeah. And I think that the default condition of humanity is not happiness or yeah. even contentment. I think that all creatures who are aware of themselves in their own lot experience mostly discomfort and discontent most of the time interrupted by moments of satisfaction and pleasure and that that's what keeps moving keeps us moving from thing to thing is that you know you feel the pleasure and then it ebbs and then you go to something else but it's not I don't think that it is a reasonable or desirable goal to be content all the time. Maybe for some right. people it is. I, I, I it mean, seems like, you know, maybe like the Dalai Lama or somebody lives in a state like that. <laughs> maybe, I guess, if, you know, he has time between processing Richard Gere and Steven Seagal's contributions. Um, uh-huh. God, there's this amazing anecdote I think about all the time where Steven Seagal was given this ceremonial title um, that denoted like his high level of enlightenment and Richard Gere commented on it. And they're both very highly placed within Tibetan Buddhism um, due to their financial contributions. What? Yeah. And Richard Gere was like, well, of course I respect the bestowing of this title, but I, I just thought that if someone were to have it bestowed upon them, it, it wouldn't be Steven. Wouldn't oh. be Steven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, good Lord. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. I also think that there is no like plateau of contentment. I don't think that you can attain a state in that way as a human being. It's just not really how we work. I mean, that's why Eden is a fable, right? right. It's a fable of before we had consciousness when we were animals and we didn't know that we were unhappy. Right. It's the the classic um, linguistic nugget from Mad Men that the Greeks had two words for utopia. Utopos, which means uh, the good place, and utopos, which means the place that cannot be. Obviously, what this expresses is that those things are confined to the realm of dreams. You can imagine being happy forever, but that has no substance. You can't touch it. You can't bring it into your own life. You can have that egg cooked just the way you want it, but you can't but eat you it. you can't eat it. <laughs> <sighs> Shall we do the next question? Yeah, I think we pretty much chewed that one up. All right, here's an easy one. What's your favorite weird-shaped fruit? Ooh. 
for me well that's that's so judgmental what is weird that's you know that's a good point julia but uh for the sake of answering the question i all fruits are beautiful (laughs) this is a um a fruit liberation podcast (laughs) this is a fruit positivity movement unfortunately it was uh quickly co-opted by carrots and green beans and <laughs> lost its original radical meaning we tried to tweet about the beautiful fruits and then the vegetables got really mad and they were like why don't you tweet about us exactly. i'm sorry this is the most recursive shit you had <laughs> an actual answer please i, I like a star fruit i think it's an fruit. odd an odd little boy i think it's got lots of <laughs> and it has a cool shiny waxy skin and I just love to pick them up and look at them and feel them in my hand. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I'm going to say a lychee. Well, it's a good one. Yeah. It's like, uh, it has like a really satisfying, like bumpy texture on the outside. And then on the inside, oh, and it has like a skin that is really satisfying to peel off also. It's very easy to peel. And then on the inside, it's so like soft and delicate. And like kind of almost diaphanous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think I don't know if that's a weird shape or if it I feel like the the like hard bumpy outside is weird for a fruit. Yeah, I think so too. I mean it's it's like someone petrified a strawberry. Yeah. Or maybe like there's some fun looking citrus fruits, like the Buddha hand one. That's pretty Ooh, cool. Yeah. What I'm does a yuzu look like? It's just like kind of a roundish, greenish, lemony thing, right? Yeah. I don't don't think it's terribly exciting. Okay, forget it. That's normal. Yeah, who cares? Fuck the yuzu. (laughs) Fuck that normal ass fruit. All right. Here's another easy one. What are your favorite songs to cry to right now? Oh, boy. Hmm. Oh, I know. I've been listening to the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy soundtrack while I work sometimes recently and uh Tar and Arena is like a really beautiful and moving track and maybe more so because I love the movie so much and I find those scenes really touching but yeah that one has been really getting to me lately I think it is a beautiful track I really like that soundtrack I mean like everything about that oh it's movie. so good it's so understood so masterful yeah let's let's take a minute and talk about Tar and Arena because as much as I would like to assume that all of our listeners have seen and understood Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I recognize that that's probably not the case. Not just because not everybody in the world has seen one of my favorite movies, but also because I think most people who see it did not follow it the first time and maybe didn't watch it 20 more times like we did. Uh, that was their mistake. That was. In the story, Ricky Tarr is a, is a spy in oh i think in the movie he's in istanbul and in the book he's in hong kong right yeah but that sounds right somewhere in the east uh he's a british spy and he is trying to pick up information from this guy that he thinks is a russian agent and then he decides that that guy is actually purposely looking for an enemy agent that he can give false information to right and i think the the craft term is trailing your coat yeah (laughs) I love that. So then Ricky ends up befriending this guy, Boris's paramour, Irina, or his his common law wife, I guess she is. And they have this love affair. 
you see this a little bit in flashbacks in the movie. Uh, in the book, you hear it told in a monologue by Ricky. And then at some point, he has a journal that she wrote that he reads from. The way that he tells it is like, you know, oh, it's this kind of, he says, oh, she was a plain kid. And, you know, it's kind of pathetic how she fell for him and told him all this stuff about her life and blah, blah, blah. You know, he really plays it off because he's kind of a ladies man. That's like his thing. But the subtext is that he really did fall for her. And it's kind of, it, it has that like wonderful combination of tragic and pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> because you see, and, and this is a, a theme that goes throughout Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is one of the reasons that we love it so much, how completely ill-equipped all of these career spies are for actual human connection. And they still feel the emotions. They still fall in love. They still need to be close to people and to be understood. But they're so tied up in the nature of truth and the nature of self and like when are the lies more real than reality? And and they just are so completely lost in this labyrinth that even if they wanted to, they couldn't unmake it because they would have to rewrite their entire life story. Yeah, they and, have phantom limbs. Yeah. So Ricky is such a, he is so obnoxious. Yeah, he's a, um, real, he's a real piece of shit. He really is. And it's hard to say exactly what kind of person Arena is because we only hear about her like second and third hand. But the kind of doomed pantomime of this holiday love affair that is actually a transaction between two spies that is actually a love affair is very moving to me. Maybe having that in mind is part of what makes the song so affecting to me. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's the visible evocation of the ruined love story that's at the heart of both versions of Tinker Taylor. You're seeing these emotions play out between these two people, and it's a proxy for the emotions between the gay couple who's falling out and secret affair sort of circumscribe the entire mystery right. around which the story revolves. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also, of course, beautiful in its own right, but it, it winds up sort of as the, the heart of this very quiet and very procedural story. Yeah, there's it's kind of the play within the play. It is it is a microcosm of, of the romance of Jim and Bill because there's this like uh really life changing profound connection between these two people that ultimately is inextricable from the the job and is destroyed by the job. Something that I think is so interesting about the way that Lacar writes about spies and spycraft is that it's very ambivalent about the ultimate use of the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I that's think, smart. Yeah, I think it's the only mature way to talk about it. But it adds such a poignant layer of like pointlessness <laughs> the whole scramble you know these people are rushing to murder each other and cover these things up and it's like what's the what's the result some people see some documents mm-hmm. and then yeah, they you can't really feel them. like the weight of the bureaucracy in every interaction like um, the scene where uh, Smiley is debriefing Ricky is part of what's interesting about it is that Smiley has been 
out of the circus for about a year at that point, and they've already changed some of the um, some of the protocols. <laughs> and just like hearing them go through, like like he's like, oh, when you got the message back, was it signed? And then Gwilym is like, no, now everything is just like from the whole circus. It's not signed by a particular person, and it's like right. There's all this like institutional obfuscation. And I, that in particular is an interesting one to me because I was thinking about this actually today in a Discord that I helped to admin, not the zine Discord, a different one, but people were getting rowdy a few days ago and one of the moderators had to tell them they were breaking a rule and they got so mad because nobody likes to be corrected or told that they're breaking a rule. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it would be better if we had like a bot set up because you can have like bots that do automatic messages and stuff on discord if there was a bot that was just like robocop that was like message from the mod team you did a bad thing so that they don't have like a specific person to get mad at (laughs) true uh and i was thinking of that about how uh ricky gets the message back that's just signed the circus not from anybody in particular even though it's obviously from percy (laughs) there's so much in that book that is about unpersoning someone Mm-hmm. How do you obscure the actions and emotions of any given individual? And I think um, that treating it as, I don't know if morally neutral is the right term, but Lacare's work doesn't really engage with the question of whether or not uh, espionage is like an ethical profession. <laughs> it just kind of treats it as a given, uh, which allows it to be, you know, we don't have to ask ourselves why are these people doing these things in in the grander scheme of things? Are they making the world a better place? Like, no, not really. This is just like busy work that boys are doing with other boys. Uh, <laughs> and it allows us to think about it in terms of our own relationships, you know, because that's what it is really is a big metaphor for like how you share different parts of yourself with different people and what you do when you're, you know. The- right. So many of, of the great, dramas that are nominally about some sort of highly specific profession or field or discipline are really about human connection because everything is about human connection yeah and you know it's like a shakespeare story that like you can set it in world war ii or you can set it during the war of the roses or whatever like right it doesn't matter the the ideas in it transcend setting mm-hmm uh, you i mean you could probably do an incredible tinker Taylor soldier spies set in a high school <laughs> I don't want to think about what it's like to be in high school. No, that's terrible. That's the problem with our high school AU. Uh, yeah, hell. I mean, I, I never actually went. I was I was homeschooled. But Oh, that's right. Was, that's a different kind of hell. I was going to say that was bad enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> My answer I think would be I've recently been rewatching American Crime Story: The Assassination of Gianni Versace. Woo. Yeah, Hot which is stuff. a, a Beautiful. Apologize. Uh, sorry. Apologies for the mechanical sounds in the background. My cat has a toy that is a salmon that flops when you swat it. Ooh. It should stop in a second. But anyway, there's this song in the final episode, Vienna by Ultravox. Yes. Oh my gosh. Sean was putting away laundry yesterday and I heard him singing that song at the top of his lungs. Yeah. Sean and I were actually talking about it the other day. Um, but it's this song that takes the statement, this means nothing to me, and soars with it. It just reaches this divine place 
where it's so clear that the singer is just fucking burning alive to get this sentiment out of him. And so, of course, his casting away of meaning is, is a huge affirmation of how much it means of, of mm-hmm. what this moment is to him. And it, it really breaks my heart. It's funny that these ideas kind of connect. I mean, putting passion into a false identity is, is what Ricky goes through. He Mm -hmm. creates this little life for himself as sort of a a bait and switch thing to lure another spy. And it ends up becoming real. And in Vienna, you have this false declaration that reveals the true emotion behind it. Mm -hmm. This is a concept that I think of as the discovery of phosphorus, uh, (laughs) which is like a great subject of art and i'm not going to remember the name of the alchemist who did this but there's an alchemist who was pursuing the great work as they do and what he was doing was uh he had a whole bunch of his piss i think it was his maybe it was horse piss but i want to say it was his that he just like boiled for a really long time to you know make it turn into the water of life or some shit and then eventually it just started glowing on its own um (laughs) because he had discovered phosphorus the element which glows so there are beautiful like paintings of this with like dramatic chiaroscuro of of you know with like the glowing piss and the dark (laughs) alchemist laboratory and and the scientist the scientist the alchemist being so amazed by his discovery and his face illuminated by his own cooked piss but the idea that you are doggedly and to the point of insanity, perhaps pursuing this false thing. And then you accidentally discover something that is so real. (laughs) He actually made a real scientific discovery. He discovered something true, which literally illuminated him. I I think that's very beautiful. I think so Um, too. So I think about that in the context of fiction, which when I was a much younger artist, And I was really obsessed with history. Not that I'm not now, but, you know, when I was like in my late teens and I was just discovering like all the horrible things that have happened in the past and there's just more and more of them. And this was also at a time in the, you know, late 90s and early 2000s on the Internet when you could just see all kinds of awful things all the time. And I was like, there's so, so much to be witnessed that has really happened And it felt to me that we do a disservice to the memory of those things to make stuff up when there's so much that is real that could be documented. And then at some point I came to the understanding that documentation is imperfect. That like that in itself is a fantasy that you could create documentation of a thing that happened in the past and have it be accurate, have it be true to the actual thing. The closest that you can get to a clear understanding of a thing that happened in the past is by taking in a lot of different perspectives of people who were there and they'll differ. You know, people have memories that disagree with one another and you just kind of have to live with the fact that none of the accounts will be 
an accurate reflection of the event. And the closest that you can get is maybe like somewhere in the center of the constellation of all those accounts. And every fucking story is Rashomon. Mm -hmm, exactly. And if you want to describe a feeling or an experience, fiction is more true than reality, more true than trying to depict reality, which I is essentially so it's not possible to recreate a thing that actually happened. So you create the same feeling, you create the same experience with a fictional story. Like, I can make you understand what happened when I tell you a fictional version more than I can if I tell you the real version. That's been my experience, too, that in art, I can use tools like melodrama and symbolism to instill the feelings that I had more accurately in another person than I can just by recounting it. Mm -hmm. Because telling someone about an experience is not the same as them experiencing it, but you can reach closer and deeper through a fictional experience. I think too that knowing that it really happened to people can be inhibiting. Yeah, there's an urge to back away. There's no. the audience wants to look for ways that it wouldn't have happened to them. You say, oh, well, that person, you know, was this kind of person and that's not me or you find ways to create distance. And certainly... You see this like when people ex when people encounter trauma narratives, a lot of times their knee jerk reaction to it is like, oh, well, this wouldn't have happened to me because. Right. Uh, I was going to say, you see the same thing with fiction, but certainly to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, people do have a real need to look at something terrible happening to another human being and express aloud, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Yeah, that's like the first reaction that people have. Which is pretty wild. She shouldn't have gone in that basement. Right. Like, like you, like there's any way to know when hell is about to split the back of your head open. Right. Exactly. It's. And it's really, it's not the point. Thing. Like, I don't understand. I do understand. I think it's stupid. Don't just call it like it is. The impulse to make it so that the bad thing didn't happen. Right. I just, I see people often in talking about story of something bad happening they're like oh well it was stupid of this person to do this if they wouldn't have done this then everything would have been fine and this this is the enter at your own risk rocky horror principle right <laughs> another totally one of my famous principles may i explain it to the audience of course in the rocky horror picture show this is a a film which i hope you've seen if you haven't you should really go watch it immediately because it's fucking great. We could do a whole episode about that. Oh, easily. And I think we should, but not tonight. But it's about these two, like, incredibly cishet squares who their car breaks down and they accidentally wander into this den of, like, queer alien freaks who fuck up their entire world, teach them to be freaks, and then just yeet out of existence. Yep. <laughs> but... Like I say, their car breaks down and it's raining and they're, oh, we have to get some help. It's the 70s or whatever. They don't have cell phones. And they come to this spooky castle with a spooky gate and there's lightning and there's a sign on the door that says, enter at your own risk. And Rocky Horror, as you're probably aware, listener, um, people go see it in the theater and there, there are things that the audience is supposed to say at certain points in the film almost continuously. And... 
when I used to go see it, at least in Manchester, New Hampshire, in the 90s, when you would see the enter at your own risk sign, we would say, risk it. If you don't, we won't have a movie. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the only explanation. That's you really don't need to go any further than that. If you don't risk it, you don't have a movie. Why does the person do the stupid thing so we can tell the story? Yes, exactly. And I mean, you know, to to bring this to another story, the other night I watched Wings of Desire with a friend, which is a Wim Wenders movie about angels who are silent observers outside of time who stand at the shoulders of people and experience their emotions with them as a form of witness. And one of the angels decides to become mortal and he goes to to pursue this woman and I was I was really apprehensive. I thought it, there was a good chance that their meeting would be sort of cheesy or pat. But instead, she starts to tell him about her life and her desires. And it looks as though he's going to lean in and kiss her and, and shut her up. And instead, he offers her his ear and just listens as she continues to talk. And it's this piece of body language that we do not have. And it was so incredible to see. And that's when someone is expressing pain to you, that is the point. There's no way to make it not have happened, but it can be shared and witnessed and held together. Just having someone listen to your story is so healing. It's powerful. Or I don't even, I don't know if healing is the right word because I don't, when you heal from an injury, the goal is to make it like it never happened, right? And yes. I don't think that's necessarily like, that's not what I want from trauma. I just want it to like be possible to live with. I guess it's to me, it, it always seems like wounds with scurvy, you know, it might close, and scar <laughs> but it's, it is like that. It's yeah. And if, when uh, circumstances become dire enough, it opens up again. I'm just thinking about the terror. I don't, <laughs> I mean, no, of course that's exactly what I'm, I'm referencing. Okay. <laughs> Glad we're on the same page. As we often are. As Glad usual. The is so good. Bean to bar, as per usual. <laughs> I love you, my brother. I love you too, my brother. All right. Here's another question. Bring it. <sighs> Your work seems to center on historical settings, which fits as anti-high polish bullshit verse. Is it because your type of horror is just more readily available to you in low-tech settings or are there high-tech variants you find interesting? So I guess this person is asking, why do we write so often in a historical setting? And do we find, you know, futuristic settings interesting at all? Uh, My answer would be that mostly I don't bother with futuristic settings because what I'm interested in is talking about human connection and suffering and the sum total of human experience stretching back to our emergence into consciousness and self-awareness. And I find that easier to touch by moving back through our past than by projecting myself into our future. Yeah. A hypothetical future doesn't really interest me very much. I have to say. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it for me too. It, It feels very simple. Um, I've written one science fiction story, Dreadnought, and I mean, I don't know that I really enjoy the experience of writing in a way that's like, oh, I loved making that. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's just what I do because I don't really know any other way to be. Um, and I, I have to get it out. <laughs> yeah, it's just the the stories are the petroleum jelly that you can sell off off the side of the oil well that is your existence. Right, exactly. And I, you know, I guess my my novel that's coming out from tour next year is set in the near future. It's set in 2023, and I do find apocalyptic stories more interesting than than straightforward science fiction because I I like to think about the ways in which everything could break and the things that could emerge in that vacuum. But even so, I I feel no urge to keep writing science fiction if if that's even what it was. I feel like mm, I mean it's just what you were saying. The idea of a potential future, some hypothetical holds no allure for me. I feel like I get asked this question in interviews pretty regularly is like why do you write historical fiction and is there like a particular link to the past in your work why don't you write contemporary stories and the answer to that for me is that I do write contemporary stories I just have not written a graphic novel set in a contemporary setting so maybe you haven't seen it but I've written lots of contemporary setting stories that are, you know, they're supernatural or they're horror or whatever. And the reason that I choose a historical setting when I do is usually because there is something about the story that I want to tell that would be inhibited by a modern setting or, you know, for example, in my book Vision that came out last August, it's set in the 1880s, I guess, maybe the 1870s. And the reason that it's set then is partly because I wanted there to be bloodletting, because I think that's interesting. And that is right around the time when bloodletting is is on the wane as a popular way of treating illness. But also because a Victorian setting is married to certain tropes that I wanted to interrogate. And it's not it's not a historically accurate, I mean, it, it, I tried to make it pretty historically accurate, but it's not supposed to really create the illusion of a story that is actually happening in like 1875 or whatever. It's a modern story that is set in 1875. It's because it's dealing with ideas of Victorian romances and Gothic fiction ghosts and invalids and feminine frailty and and uh the um the conflict between empirical science and the experiences like spiritual subjective experience but it's not discussing them in in a way that would be meaningful to the victorians it's discussing them in a way that is meaningful to us and the only reason that it's set then is because the imagery that we associate with those questions is Victorian. So those, when I'm examining those things, it has to be with that kind of imagery. You know, I have to be talking about, you know, for example, there's a character in that book who is an invalid and that's a, that's a like very powerful image of, of Victorian literature that I think is still 
you know, powerful to us. It has some resonance because the way that we feel about sick people is still really conflicted. They're, you know, we envy them and we pity them and we resent them. And They're a reminder of our own mortality. Uh huh. We recoil from them because some part of us interprets them as unclean. Mm-hmm. And there's something very sensuous about them, about the idea of being so so much uh, subject to the vicissitudes of the body. That's part of what's fascinating about the invalid is that they're they're uh, so they're so defined by their physical, and then you have this idea that they're like. Oh, you know, they have this like spiritual presence that transcends their frailty or whatever. When the actual experience of being sick for a long period of time is like maybe not that. It's like you get tired of people treating you like that and you, you know, you get cabin fever and you get bored and you lash out and, you know, there's all these conflicting things. It's traumatic, it's painful and irritating. be deeply irritating to be in prolonged discomfort in that way yeah and it's dehumanizing yeah it is so to embody all of these things simultaneously it can't it can't be a modern invalid it has to be a victorian invalid does that make sense yeah it does i mean the victorian invalid is a distinct symbol in the way that we think about sickness right like if i'm going to talk about somebody having tuberculosis in 2021 it's a completely different thing right then then somebody having consumption in in 1875 and you know our own conceptions of these things are workaday by definition they don't hold the same resonance as something that is no longer in the world and has therefore gone through romanticization and mythologization right and a lot of what i am interested in in my work is taking an ideal or an archetype and looking for how a human being could be inside of it, how a person can come to embody that idea for someone else and how it feels to be that, to represent that to other people. Yeah. But to do that, I have to start with the archetype. When I'm choosing a setting and telling a story, there are so many images that I find moving and exciting and that I want to set people around and and imagine their reactions to that just don't occur in my part of the modern world or in most of the modern world. You know, it's tough to find a a public burning going on (laughs) in America today. Yeah. They mostly do this behind closed doors these days. Right. (laughs) Um, there's this whole world of extreme religious and cultural experiences that in our own world have been very much sort of corporatized and made quiet and which have traded spectacle for the threat of implication. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I want to write, I mean, you've said before, like my favorite movies are all really abrasive they and, really are. And and that's what I want. I want to create something that is just constantly pounding the reader with these extreme images and sensations and the sense of crisis. Yeah, it's exhausting to read your work. 
yeah, I, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I want it to feel like at the end you just came out of a ringer. Um, yeah, it does feel like that. Thank you. That means a lot to me. <laughs> You're very um, welcome. And it's it's different to do that in a contemporary setting. I think if you make the setting too familiar, then it's too easy for the reader to be like, oh, well, but why don't they do this or that? It, right. Uh, it's good to unmoor people a little bit from their everyday experience. That's that's another point I wanted to make is uh, I hate dealing with phones. Yeah. Cell phones ruin so many good plot points. Yeah. I, I just don't I just don't want to do it. I find it irritating. It really does ruin a lot of good storytelling. You just think about, like, I didn't watch very much Sherlock, but, like, I saw maybe one or two episodes of it, and they would have, like, text messages, like, pop up on the screen, and then you would see the actor reacting to it, and it was, it's really gruesome. Yeah, deeply embarrassing. You hate to see it. You really do. In short, we write in historical settings because we have taste and class. (laughs) But I did do a comic, River of Tears is the name of it. I put it in a self-published anthology called Black Light. I think you can read it on study group still, probably in its entirety, or on my Patreon if you subscribe to that. But part of the premise of River of Tears is that the main character is getting text messages from his ex and is getting them throughout and perhaps after her suicide attempt. Um, So it's not like I have completely disregarded the existence of phones. Sometimes, sometimes a phone can, because the disembodied voice is always terrifying, right? Yeah. But in comics, you don't have access to the sound of a voice. And to me, like a distorted human voice is, one of the most scary things that you can have, like a number station. Oh my God. Terrifying. Uh, the what worst. I always, what I always think about two moments that use the disembodied voice so well. Um, and which I think are, are directly connected. The Tell first, me and then I'll say mine. Okay. The first is on the Sopranos when uh, Tony breaks up with his mistress, Gloria, who is highly mentally unstable and volatile. And you can have she, to be a lot more specific. <laughs> um she's the the mercedes no. globe saleswoman okay okay yeah. anyway i'm just giving you shit i'm up. sorry that's all right i'm i'm always happy to take your shit so she calls him and Im- immediately just spilling out of the phone is her depressive suicidal babble just like i can't i can't i don't i don't mm-hmm. stammering falling over herself and it, it's so to anyone who's ever had a suicidal loved one that they had to support over the phone because they couldn't be there in person. Oh my God. It is such a visceral sensation. It is such an incredible mixture of helplessness and frustration and fear and sometimes boredom because, you know, depression Uh is very dull and tedious and it goes on forever. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's repetitious and it's meaningless. And there's a similar scene in a movie that I'm I'm pretty eh on overall, Midsummer, where at the beginning of the film there's this kind of dysfunctional relationship between a young couple and 
the woman has a sister who is implied to constantly be going through these big, huge mental health crises. And at the time that we meet them, the sister kills herself. And we learn this when the boyfriend who's off with his friends, his phone rings and he picks it up. And there's just this awful ear shredding tide of black sludge of a whale pours out. Yes. It's incredible. It's, it's one of the most fantastic moments of raw grief that I've seen. And the person expressing it isn't even there. Yes. Just, just amazing. Um, Whatever Florence Pugh did to get that out of herself. Woo. Really extraordinary. But yeah, the disembodied voice carries emotion that is disconnected from from flesh, from experience. It's it's frightening. It's off-putting. I actually did totally circumvent phones by writing Manhunt. There are no Oh phones. yeah. The whole the whole network is down. Well, my favorite disembodied voices this is off the top of my head in movies are okay in Ringu when (laughs) they are they get the haunted videotape and they this is such an incredible movie (laughs) it's really an all-time favorite for me they get the haunted videotape and they are analyzing it and they realize that there's a distorted voice in it and they screw around with it until they can understand what it's saying and it's saying like a stupid thing that sounds stupid when you translate it into English, but uh, it's very spooky and upsetting to hear. And the idea that there's a distorted voice that's playing that you hear it, but you don't realize that you're hearing it because it's been slowed down so much that you don't recognize it as a voice. Ooh, it's so upsetting. And the other one is the conversation. Ooh, my God really like another all-time favorite movie for me and maybe the single greatest like voice without a body movie yes because that that recording is a character in the film and you hear it i mean over the course of the film you hear the conversation many many times and the film opens with when the actual conversation is happening and yeah, it's, it's people real, are recording it. For, uh, me leaning over to you and saying that's the conversation. <laughs> so the conversation is a film about these people, and in particular, Gene Hackman's character. They're surveillance experts, I guess, and they've been hired to surveil on this particular couple who knows that they're being spied on. So they've taken measures to. Uh, avoid surveillance by having their conversation while walking through a crowd and they keep moving. And so it, it, it's really complicated to get a recording of them and they have to get different pieces at different points and then splice them together and, you know, make adjustments to make it understandable. They have to do a lot of post-production work on it before they can hand it into the client. And in the course of doing this, of course, they, listen to the conversation and start to have ideas about what it's about. And there's a question of uh, how accurate their impression of it can be when all they have is the disembodied voices and they don't know the context and they 
anyway, it's incredible. It's a great movie. Um, yeah, that disembodied voice, he'd kill us if he had the chance. <sighs> and the the fear that yeah. Hackman feels at holding this thing. I mean, both Ringu and the conversation about are about the power of a a voice, some emotional concept divorced from a body. Right. I mean, essentially it's about you have a document from a murder victim. Yes, exactly. And Hackman has this huge reaction to it and it informs so many of his actions in the movie. And in the end, he has to come face to face with the fact that he didn't understand it at all. Mm -hmm. This seems like a good place to stop. What do you think? Yeah, sure. I'm good with stopping here. I should look up our links and things so that I can tell people you have been listening to the Lament Configuration podcast, and you can subscribe to us by going to anchor.fm slash lament hyphen configuration. You can also listen to us on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Copy RSS. And you can follow me on Twitter or on Patreon. My username is Thorazos, T-H-O-R-A-Z-O-S, like Thorazine, but if it was a planet. And I am scumbelievable. Yeah, you are. Yeah, simply scumbelievable. <laughs> thank you so much for listening, everyone, and thanks for sending in your questions. Yes, thank you. Send us more at either of us on Twitter. Absolutely. Good night, Gretchen. Good night, Juju.